Thanks, Hans, very much. Friends, it's wonderful to be with you. My name is James Ballinger. I'm a mission partner. We shouldn't be here. We should be uh, in Japan at the moment, but it's uh, wonderful to be with you for a few months. And it's my privilege this morning to uh, preach from this uh, passage, this account of Jesus' death. And I wonder as you heard that read, that long account, what was in your heart and mind? Let's uh, pray and ask that God by his spirit would reveal what he wants us to see this morning of Jesus and his death. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are a God who speaks. And so as we've just heard this account of Jesus' death, speak to the hearts of each one of us. Help us to see the truth of who Jesus is for his glory's sake. Amen. Queen Elizabeth's coronation captivated the hearts of many. Um, Initially, the um, establishment, I'm told, was horrified at the thought of this ancient ceremony being shown to anybody on television. But um, Prince Philip, if you've seen The Crown, you'll know Prince Philip interceded. He was adamant this should be shown to everyone. And sure enough, as the, uh, the coronation was announced that it would be shown on television, sales of TV skyrocketed. Everyone wanted a ringside seat at the making of a queen. As the day approached, June the 2nd, 11.15 in the morning, over uh, 27 million people in Britain alone gathered around those little TVs, another 11 huddling around radios. People around the world were in even greater numbers. People wanted to see the making of a king. And those who were there, those who saw it, it was an unforgettable event. The pomp, the pageant, the ancient liturgy, all of it to show off the glory and majesty of Queen Elizabeth. Well, what we have before us this morning is the unveiling of a king. And we have ringside seats at Jesus, if you like, coronation, as Mark demonstrates to us, records for us the events of Good Friday, the day that Jesus died. But what we don't see this morning is a sumptuous feast of pageantry. We don't see lots of glory and royal finery. In fact, the, the symbols and emblems of kingship are subverted rather than Jesus' glory being shown, he's humiliated. Chapter 15 begins with Jesus being brought in chains to Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate's question to Jesus in verse 2 makes it crystal clear what this chapter is all about. Look at verse 2. Are you the king of the Jews? This is the first time the word king has been used for Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And these verses make it clear he is a king. But not a king like Queen Elizabeth, not a king who will come into his kingdom with all the finery of a royal coronation. Instead, we see God's king humbled and humiliated. We see him willing to forgo that glory, that pageantry, to suffer so that his people might be rescued. Just as it was prophesied in the Old Testament, Jesus himself had said that he would die He would be killed, he'd be humiliated, and then he would rise again to rescue his people. Or as we come to the end of Mark, as we spend, in a sense, an inordinate amount of time, Mark is 16 chapters, and and the last two, two, two chapters, chapter and a half, is all about his death. So much focus on his death and, and little compared to his life. But as we focus on this, I want us to see Jesus clearly. 
I want us to see what kind of king he is. And my hope and prayer is, although we can't look at all the details, but from what we do see, God will show us his true glory and we'll leave here eager, whoever we are, whether we're someone who calls Jesus our king already or not, we'd leave here eager to make him king of every area of our lives. We're going to look at seven scenes this morning. We're going to whiz through them. There's so much here, we can't look at every detail. Do ask me questions afterwards. Do take the questions to your connect groups. We're going to see seven brief scenes. And the first is this scene of a wonderful exchange. There was a custom at Passover that the Roman authorities would release a prisoner to the Jews. And we're told in verse 7, there's this man, Barabbas. He's a rebel, he's a murderer, and he's guilty. And the crowd comes to Pilate and they say, Pilate, will you honor the custom again this year? And Pilate says, yes, do you want me, verse 9, to release to you the king of the Jews? And we're told why Pilate offers them that. He knows it's just because of the envy of the chief priests that they've brought Jesus to them. But they stir up the crowd. The crowd calls for Barabbas. Well, what shall I do with the king of the Jews, Pilate asks? Crucify him. What has he done wrong? He's innocent. The king is innocent. Crucify him. Crucify him. The crowd shouts back. And then we have these horrible words of verse 15. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate's a terrible warning to us. He warns us that it's possible to know so much about Jesus, to see so much about Jesus, and yet get it so tragically wrong. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, didn't he? We're told in verse 5 that he was amazed at Jesus. He, to be fair, did try to let Jesus away. And yet at the end of the day, he's not concerned with justice. He's not concerned with truth. He's not concerned with doing the right thing. He's concerned with securing his position. He wants to please the crowd. And the crowd trumps the king. And tragically, there are so many today like this, aren't they? They refuse to recognize Jesus as king, not because the claims of Jesus aren't clear, but because the crowd trumps the king. And people know that if they put Jesus first in every area of their life, then they'll be scorned perhaps from a colleague at work. Perhaps parents will ask, did I not give for your education and now you throw it all away to follow this crucified king? And the crowd trumps the king. Well, Jesus is handed over to be killed. But it opens the way for this wonderful exchange. Jesus is condemned, but Barabbas is free. Now, Barabbas' name is fascinating. It means son of a father. Bar means son of, Abba means father. And I want you to imagine this Barabbas in his cell under the area where the trial is taking place. And imagine he wakes up that morning and he knows today is the day he's slated to be crucified. And as he wakes up, he can hear this hubbub above him. There's people milling around and shouting. And this jailer comes to his cell, he opens a door. Barabbas' heart sinks. He knows this will be the time he faces justice for his crimes. 
is led out of the cells. He walks up the steps. And as he gets near the entrance, he can hear clearly what the crowd are shouting, crucify him, crucify him. He steps out into the sunlight. He's dazzled by the bright, hot sun. And he thinks this is it. But as his eyes get used to the scene, he sees another man being flogged. Somebody comes and undoes his shackles, tells him he's free. I wonder what Barabbas thought as he walked away. Was he amazed? Was he full of joy? Did he realize that the king was killed so he could go free? Or was he just indifferent? Just thought he got off lucky, entitled? We don't know. But one thing's crystal clear. This guilty Barabbas, this guilty son of the father was set free because another son of the father, the innocent son of the heavenly father, the innocent king took his punishment. And this little picture with this real man, Barabbas, points to a great bigger picture, doesn't it? Because the Bible makes it clear that each one of us are rebels, not against the Roman authorities, but against God's authority. Each one of us rightly should have a death sentence passed on us. We've rebelled against God. We've turned away from him. And yet the king comes to offer us this wonderful exchange. He has taken the death penalty that we might not. It's a glorious exchange so that each one of us can say, the king died for me. Well, the second scene we see is Jesus' coronation. Pilate handed Jesus over to the soldiers. And once a a sentence of crucifixion had been passed, it was up to the soldiers what they did with them. We kind of have the impression that crucifixion took one form. There is many styles of crucifixion as there were executioners. Well, in this case, the company, about 600 men, gather in Pilate's residence and they decide to hold a coronation service. It has many of the elements of Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953, except this time not to honor the king, but to humiliate him. Look at verse 17. They dressed him in a purple robe, the clothing of royalty. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. And again, just as they would salute a Caesar, they salute Jesus. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Then getting down on their knees, they were paying homage to him. And in this ironic mock coronation, the soldiers are trying to make a powerful point. This man is no king. Kings are those who are glorious. Kings are those who are powerful. And he is nothing. He's a counterfeit king. But ironically, as they get down on bended knee before Jesus... They model the true response. The one they kneel before is the one before whom every single person on this earth who's ever lived will one day kneel and give an account of their king. And as they mock Jesus for his weakness, ironically, they unveil the kind of king he is. Every other king, every other ruler shuns weakness, seeks glory, shuns the lowly. And here is the king freely, willingly associating himself with the weak, with the despised, with the poor. If you feel like that this morning, Jesus associates himself with you. 
And not just to associate, but to serve, to be humbled, that we need never be humbled, to suffer, that we may escape the shame of judgment. Well, when the soldiers finished abusing him, they led him out to crucify him. It seems he was so weak from the flogging, he couldn't carry his cross. It was normal that uh, a person being crucified would carry the crossbeam over their shoulders. But he seems too weak to do that. So they order this man, they compel this man, Simon, to carry it. And together they walk to Golgotha, to the place of the skull. And then we read, verse 24, so matter-of-factly, then they crucified him. Just think what's encapsulated in those four words. And above his head is the charge. And what is written is the king of the Jews. Why does he die? Because he's the king. And even as Jesus hangs on the cross, people mock him. Look at verse 29. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, though the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Do you see the point? If you're the king... Come down and prove it. I don't know about you, but if somebody says to me, prove yourself, there's something in me that makes me want to do it. Yesterday, uh, not yesterday, on Friday, we went to Motat. And there's in Motat, I'm sure other people have been there over the last couple of weeks, uh, there's a, a kind of robot room. And there's robot arms, which are really those, um, those kind of tools for picking up litter. But they, they look a little bit like robot arms. And um, there's a challenge in there to see how many uh, cups, paper cups, you can pick up with these robot arms and stack in a pyramid in a certain amount of time. Well, we tried it. And uh, my kids did kind of okay. I did much better. But as we were kind of finishing, I, I didn't make the challenge. And the kids were like, Daddy, you can't do it. And Charlie looked at me and said, yeah, you can't do it. Let's go. <laughs> There's something in me that says, I'm going to stay here until it's done. <laughs> now, fortunately, my stomach was rumbling, so I didn't spend the next two hours staying there doing that. We left and had lunch. But there's something that says, I'm going to prove it. And if I was hanging on the cross and people said, prove you're the king, come down and, and show us who you are, there's Every fiber in my body would say, I am the king. I'm going to prove to you that I'm the king. And Jesus had all the power of heaven. We heard in the garden that he could call upon a legion of angels to rescue him. He could easily have come down and saved himself. Praise God, he's not like me. Because the reason he doesn't come down is not because he can't, but because if Jesus left the cross... He, couldn't, he could save himself, but we would be lost forever. It's not the nails that hold him there. It's not fear of the crowd or the soldiers that holds him there. It's not because he's powerless that he stays there. It's because he's the king who in that moment is giving his life to save others, to save even those at the foot of the cross who mock him. Isn't it extraordinary? Just worth noting, in that moment, when Jesus seems so out of control, he's the kind of one acted upon. Everything that's happening 
is in line with what he predicted. Everything is in line with what is prophesied in the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at Psalm 22 or Psalm 68, where 69, where many of these details of the cross are foretold in great detail. This is not some random act of violence. This is God's plan for salvation. And Jesus remains there to finish the job he does with love. He remains there to save. He's the king who gives his life as a ransom for many. Well, Jesus is crucified at nine o'clock in the morning. As we come to the end of his life, it's midday. And I want us to notice four features of his death. I just want to slow down slightly as Mark does, as Jesus dies. And I want you to notice four things. They all begin with C. And if you've never taken time to ponder Jesus' death, maybe go home and do that sometime this week. This helps us to see what is going on as Jesus died. Four things, all beginning with C. The first is the clouds. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. There's a darkness. Now, whether it's by clouds or not, we, we actually don't know, but clouds and darkness in, in the Bible are signs of judgment. And what is clear is this is the middle of the day. It's a bright, sunny day, brighter than today. And suddenly, for three hours, it's dark. And this darkness is a sign of God's anger, God's wrath, at what is going, going on on earth. Who is he angry at? Well, in a sense, surely those who are killing his son. But even more than that, the next sea shows us he's angry with Jesus. He's angry with his son. It's made clear by the cry. We read, at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lamak, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? They're harrowing words. All through this gospel, we've seen Jesus with a warm, loving relationship with his father. And now he's abandoned by everyone, abandoned already by his disciples, now abandoned by his God. And notice how he addresses his father. All through this book, he's called him father, a loving, warm, intimate term. And suddenly he cries out, not my father, my father, but my God, my God, almost as if he's searching. Where are you? And the answer is he's been abandoned. Because as God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see his beloved son. He sees one covered in sin. And yet this is the one who is innocent of all sin. And yet in the moment of the cross, Jesus bore our sin. At the cross, a great exchange takes place. It's what makes it possible for Barabbas to go free, for you and I to go free. Laid on Jesus is our sin. And God looks down and responds as he must to sin. It destroys the relationship. And on Jesus, God's wrath is poured out. His settled holy anger is poured out. Jesus is abandoned and cut off. But so that we don't need to be. And this punishment is accepted. We know that 
from the third sea. Look again at 37, there's another cry. Jesus lets out a loud cry and breathes his last. And then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I just want you to imagine this scene as if it were a film. This is, this is kind of odd. We've got this focused in thing on Jesus outside the cross. He's dying on the cross outside the city. And then suddenly Mark pans to the temple. The director pans to the temple. It, it's odd, isn't it? The temple's inside the city. The temple's kind of clean, and we've gone from this execution place to the temple, and it seems unconnected. But what we've got to remember is what that curtain, what the temple stands for. The, there were two curtains in the temple. Most likely, this curtain, though, is the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, from the holy of holies. And this holy of holies is the place where symbolically God dwelt, where God's presence rested. And it's a place so holy that no one can enter except the chief priest. And that once a year after an elaborate series of rituals. And only then can he go in. And and legend has it they tied a rope around his leg with a bell. And if the bell stopped ringing, they'd know that God's holiness had killed him and they'd pull him out by the rope. It's that holy. And this curtain that separates those two places is like a massive no-entry sign. On the, the, this curtain, it's nine centimeters thick. It's absolutely massive. And it, it, it's as if it says, because of your sin, you can't come in. No entry. But at the moment Jesus dies, that curtain is split in two. And notice how it's split in two. From top to bottom, God tears it in two. And symbolically, the place where God dwells is open. The no entry sign has been torn down. There's access. No longer you can't go in because of your sin. But because Jesus dealt with your sin, you're welcome in. We're welcome in. We can go to the place where God dwells. We can come to God. But no longer at the temple, but in Jesus. We see the clouds of God's anger, the darkness. We see this cry of forsakenness, Jesus bearing the penalty of sin. Then we see the curtain gloriously open. All can go in. And then the fourth sea, we see this confession. When the centurion who was standing opposite Jesus saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. What a remarkable thing to say. He's just watched Jesus be executed in the most horrendous fashion imaginable. And then he says he was God's son. Now this centurion has seen lots of people die. What is special about this death? We don't know exactly. But in that moment of humiliation, his eyes are open to see Jesus in all his glory. And this phrase is so significant. Do you remember how Mark's gospel began? The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then at Jesus' baptism, as he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him and a voice from heaven says, you are my son, whom I love. And then at his transfiguration, we saw it a few weeks ago, Jesus' clothes go white as we see a foretaste of his heavenly glory. Again, a voice from heaven, you are my son. But no human in this gospel Despite all the miracles they've seen, despite him raising people from the dead, no human has called him God's son. Peter's climactic confession said, you are the Messiah. 
It's great, but it's not, not like this. Demons, interestingly, have called him God's son, but no human has. And then in this moment of his death, this centurion gets it. You are God's son. And you see the point from beginning to end. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is the good news in all of its glory. The son of man has given his life as a ransom for many. The king has borne the punishment. The great exchange has taken place. Theologically and in the story, this is the high point of the gospel. And it asks us, will we echo the centurion's confession? Will we acknowledge Jesus for who he is? The suffering servant, king, God's son. But of course, if it ended there, there'd be a problem. Notice how he describes him as this man was the son of God. If he's dead, he may have been a king. But what use is that? He may have been God's son, but what use is that? Remember in, in, the, tar- in the parable of the vineyard, when the, the, God, the, the man who represented God sent a whole bunch of servants. And then the final servant he sends is, is his son. And he says, surely they'll listen to the son. But those owners of the vineyard said, if we kill the son, we can have the vineyard for ourselves. Well, if God's son is dead, we can do that. People sometimes today say, God is dead. We can do whatever we like. There's no judgment. There's no accountability. God's dead. Do it as we please. If the story finishes there, it's finished. But the next scenes make it clear that it's not finished there. The next scene, first of all, makes it clear that Jesus really is dead. Look at verse 42, where we see Joseph of Arimathea going to get Jesus' body. And Mark's kind of getting out his highlighter and saying, Jesus really is dead. And we wonder, why is he doing that? I think he's doing it because the people like me in the world. When I began to look at Christianity, I was 19, I'd, I'd never read the Bible before. But as I began to read the Bible and, and accounts of Jesus' life, I could see pretty quickly that Jesus appeared to lots and lots of people after the cross. It's an undeniable fact. And I thought, okay, that means Jesus didn't die. Because dead people don't rise from the grave. And so I kept reading and I thought, well, maybe he fainted. Maybe they didn't do the job properly. As I read more, it was clear to me that it actually it's undeniable that Jesus was dead. And I'd already said that Jesus appeared to people after he rose, so I had to put those two things together and suddenly my presupposition, my, my assumption that dead people didn't rise from that, I had to challenge that. Actually, it took more faith to believe that this dead guy who'd appeared to people that that happened because he didn't die than to accept that God and his great power could raise somebody from the dead. Well, Mark is trying to help people like me see that Jesus really is dead. Joseph goes and asks Pilate for the body. In verse 44, Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead. He summons the centurion and he asks him whether Jesus was dead. And when he found out from the centurion, he gave Joseph the corpse. Pilate's surprised. He checks. So he finds out from the centurion. Centurion, an expert at killing people, confirms Jesus is dead. And so what does Pilate give Joseph? Not the body, but the corpse. Jesus is dead. And Joseph buries him. Jesus is dead. 
and buried. But still, it's not the end because he's risen. Look down at verse one of chapter 16. So much detail in here, I'd love to show you. We're running out of time. But when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they could go and anoint Jesus. And we see they go very early on the first day of the week. Jesus died on Friday. Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. They've rested. They're not allowed to go to the tomb. And so Sunday comes, the first day of the week, and they go to find Jesus. And they're wondering, who's going to roll away the stone so we can get into the tomb? That's an important detail, I think. A whole bunch of people say, maybe these these women, they, they were so in love with Jesus that they, they kind of hoped that he'd be alive. And there's kind of a wish fulfillment going on here. And so when they get to the tomb, because they want Jesus to be alive, because they're kind of hoping he's alive, they hallucinate that he's alive. Well, aside from the kind of weird Freudian the old, uh, sort of psychology of that, aside from the fact that there's not really such a thing as mass hallucination, the women weren't hoping he'd be alive. They knew he was dead. And they're worried, how are they going to get in? But when they get there, the stone is already rolled away. And they see this man sitting in a white robe. And he says, you're looking for Jesus Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. How extraordinary must those words have sounded to their ears. He is not here. Go and look and see where he was. And then go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee just, and you will see him just as he has told you. This is exactly what Jesus said. The son of man will be betrayed into the hands of men, tick. He will be killed, tick. And he will rise three days later, tick. He's risen, he's done what he said. The king is alive. But what's more, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, just like he told you. When did he say that? We looked last week, didn't we, at the Last Supper. Straight after the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, all of you will fall away because it is written in the Old Testament, in Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. And after that, Peter, in a moment of pride, says, all these guys, all these other disciples might fall away, but I never will. Jesus says to him, you will, this night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. And sure enough, he does. They all are scattered. But notice what Jesus says now. Notice what this man now says. The king is risen. And because the king is risen, he's going ahead into Galilee where you can be reconciled to him. And notice how this man singles out Peter. Tell his disciples and Peter. And you see, even Peter, proud Peter, Peter who pledged his allegiance so wholeheartedly and then betrayed Jesus, Jesus goes to welcome him too. Friends, I don't know if that brings comfort to you. Maybe there's some of us who know this morning, though we've called Jesus our king, though we've pled allegiance to him, Actually, we've let him down. We've failed him. We've betrayed him. We wonder, can he really forgive us? And the answer is the king has paid the ransom. The penalty is paid at the cross. The curtain is open. Whatever you've done, 
whoever you are, you can be reconciled to the king. He's paid the ransom for you. But if these words are true about reconciliation, if they're true about the resurrection, they're true as well that Jesus one day will return. Do you remember he said, I will return on the clouds of heaven in the Father's glory. Then he will come to judge the world. Now if Jesus is dead and buried in a tomb, so what if he says he's coming again? But the one who smashes through the grave, the one who smashes through death, if that one comes again in glory to judge, now that is a terrifying thought if you're his enemy. And so Jesus says now, be reconciled, make peace, bow the knee, not in, hum- not in mockery as those soldiers did, but with all your life. The resurrection reminds us the judge is alive. But now is the time he offers reconciliation. Or the final scene is this embarrassing ending. Isn't this ending embarrassing? I'm no creative writer, but even I feel like I could have done a better job than Mark. (laughs) Do you know what? If you wrote this in your English class, you'd get like a D minus. What? First, they went out. These women went out. They ran from the tomb. They became trembling, and because of trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Jesus, uh, this man told them, go and tell them, the disciples. This is a moment of great joy. And they go away like frightened children. Now this is so embarrassing that later Christians rewrote the end of Mark's gospel. This doesn't fit. We can't give this, this gospel to our friends. We've got to give it a better ending. And you can, if you've got a Bible, you can see that better ending. But it's not the real ending, and we know it's not the real ending because the earliest manuscripts of the Bible don't have that ending. And even some modern people who accept the gospel ends at verse 8 say this, this isn't quite how it is. They try and interpret the women's fear. Not as, they're not being scaredy cats. This is reverent fear. This is pious fear. I'm not really sure what that means, but they're, they're running, they're frightened. They ignore what this man says. And actually, it has a ring of authenticity, doesn't it? If you were making this up, you, you wouldn't include this. But if it's true, however embarrassing it is, you might. But why doesn't Mark just stop at verse 7? Why include this embarrassing stuff? And I think the reason is, he wants to leave the story open. He throws the ball, as it were, back to our court, to you, to me this morning, and says, what will you do with this? We know from elsewhere in the Bible that this isn't the end for the women. They go on to be faithful followers of Jesus. But at this point, the story hasn't ended. And the question is, how will we end the story? Will we, who've seen the king, just as they did, they were watching this whole series of events, as we've sat at the ringside of Jesus' coronation, as we've seen this king, as we've heard this confession, as we've seen the temple curtain open, how we respond. Will we go out with our tail between our legs, embarrassed? Or will we go out boldly? Will we say, if that is the king, I want to give my everything for Jesus. I want to follow him. If we see some area of our life where we're not, will we say, Jesus, have that area today? 
or we'll be frightened, embarrassed, ashamed. And then one day Jesus will come in all his glory and he will be ashamed of us. The ball is thrown to our court. Friends, I wonder what the king says to you this morning. Let's have a moment of silence. And in our hearts, let's respond to Jesus. He's here with us by his spirit. Let's pledge to him our allegiance. Maybe some there's something we need to find out more. Let's pledge to Jesus. I'm going to find that out. I'm going to ask my questions. But let's not shun the king. Moment of silence and then I'll pray. Lord Jesus, as we watch, as we've been privileged to see these last moments of your life, we praise you that you were prepared not to seek glory now, not to be acknowledged on earth, but to give your life as a ransom for many. We pray that each of us would be able to call you our king. For those who are not ready to do that, help us uh, to take the steps we need to and find out more of who you are. But we long, help us to follow you, the servant king, this week. Help us to go out with great boldness, with the name and words of Jesus on our lips, for his glory's sake. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.